so great to see you all. Happy New Year, if uh, we haven't seen you since the beginning of the new year. It's a brand new year, and we're super excited about some of the things that are happening here and some of the things that are going on, especially at uh, the beginning of this season in the church calendar called Epiphany. And this is going to be new for some of you guys, and that's okay. Some of us low church folk. Anybody with me? Yeah. Um, we're starting today a journey through the season of Epiphany. Actually, I think Curdy can throw up a uh, picture. This is where we've been. We're taking some time to walk through the liturgical church calendar and the seasons within the liturgical church calendar. And so we've been through Advent. Advent is actually the beginning of the church calendar, four Sundays before Christmas, the Christmas season, which is 12 days, which we just finished up last Sunday. So last Sunday was actually the 12th day of Christmas. And Monday was the Festival of Epiphany, which is the celebration of the manifestation of Jesus to the Gentiles through these guys known the Magi, which we're going to actually look at today. And so Epiphany starts on January 6th, which was Monday. And now, over the next bunch of weeks, we're going to take some time and talk about Epiphany, but more importantly, look at a number of different stories and texts from the scripture and from the lectionary that really show us the mind-blowing. I know it's hard for our minds to be bent, especially if you're a church kid, Sunday school kid, flannel board kid. Anybody with me? A few of you, you know what I'm talking about? Like me. Um, some of this can be lost a bit, but we're going to talk about these, this mind-blowing reality that... This news was not just for the Jewish people and the people of God in the Old Testament, but it began to break into common, ordinary, everyday people like us who weren't really in the family of God and have been brought in. And this is what Epiphany is about. It's about this celebration of God coming to us as Gentile people, which is most of us in this room. It's pretty amazing. So I'm really excited about the next little while. I am personally excited that there's something that's ruling over us and governing us, and that's Jesus, obviously. But I also like the reality that there's texts and things put over us in the lectionary where we're not just making this stuff up. And you're thankful for that? I think, you think, I, think, I think it's probably good once in a while just to have something that leads us and guides us. So with that said, and if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2, and what we're going to do is we're going to look at the primary epiphany text. So if you want to open up your Bibles, Matthew chapter 2. By the way, if I didn't say my name's Drew, if we haven't met, we'd love to meet you after the gathering. There's also, by the way, a little commercial the back of the room, there's an iPad there with a connection form. If you fill that out, we would love to make a donation on your behalf to our friends at Mission Services just on our behalf. We love that. So let's do something radical. Let's actually read scripture in church. Let's read the Epiphany story. But before we get there, I love this de definition of Epiphany. I mean, there's a ton of definitions that people have come up with just around the idea of what an Epiphany is. I love this one. It's an experience of a sudden and striking realization. An experience of a sudden and striking realization. Now, I don't know if you've ever had a moment in your life where you were convinced on something for a long time and then you came to realize that you were wrong. Anybody? Anybody, anybody married? In the room, okay? Um, so some of you guys know this story, but this was a, just a key moment in my life. This, this was like a, a huge epiphany in my life. So uh, in 2008, uh, a number of years ago, we took a team to Southeast Asia, to Thailand, to just to do some work. My friend Peter lives there, and we wanted to go visit him and see some of the work that he's doing. And so there's a small team of five or six of us that went to Thailand for two weeks, and I led this team with another gal. Her name was Bonnie Adams, who some of you know. Fantastic gal, and we led this team together. 
And before I left on the trip, somebody had said, hey, I think this was like right around uh, like SARS or mad cow disease or whatever. And so they're like, dude, you need to get your team airborne for all the flights and planes that you're going to take. You know, it just is this thing that you take and it helps your immune system and especially with all the diseases and stuff going around, just to build up the immune system, take some airborne. So I remember we landed for our first layover at O'Hare Airport and I was walking along and on a rack outside the pharmacy in the airport was airborne. And so I like stocked up for the team, got, got a bunch of these like almost like Alka-Seltzer tablets and got ready and like bought some because I knew we had all sorts of connecting flights even within Thailand and flying around on buses and trains and planes and automobiles and everything. So I got our, time, our team ready. And so we're sitting in the plane ready to take off in O'Hare. And I said, guys, somebody's told me about Airborne. Here's what you do. You open it, you put it in your mouth. There may be a little pain, but it's going to build your immune system. It's going to be amazing. So here we are, and if, some of you guys know Bonnie. It's just great, because like, Bonnie's the best. She's almost like a, was at that point almost like a mom uh, to me and uh, my mom's age. And so here we are, the eight of us, six or eight of us, or how many, sitting, popping these Elka-Seltzer tablets in our, in our mouths, and like, it's just exploding in our mouths. Like Our mouths are foaming. But I am convinced this is how you take Airborne. So I'll trip long every time. I'm like passing it out. Hey, Bonnie, you pass these puppies out. I'm the best team leader ever, keeping our immune systems up. And everybody's in the back of the, the bus or the plane, and they're like just mouths are fizzing, but we're all kind of nodding our head like, hey, this is for our better health, so it's all good. So we get home from the trip, and I'm watching American television. You know, like the, the TV guide style commercials, like the shopping channel style commercials. One day, I'm just like, this is two weeks after, sitting watching, and there's a commercial for Airborne. And so there's a gal who's using the product, and she opens it and puts the tablet in water <laughs> and stirs it and takes it. And I'm like in that moment, I'm part in tears, like laughing, because like, this is the greatest moment ever. And I grab my phone right away and like calling and texting the team. I had it all wrong. Got to put the tablet in the water, just in case you ever want to keep the uh, immune system up. That's what you do. Now, we all have these moments. We all have these moments where there's this striking realization that things change. An epiphany is about a striking reality that the course, the course of human history is going to change here. Israel on the edge of their seat waiting for a Messiah, waiting for the world to be set to rights. And here it is, but in the most unlikely form and place and through the most unlikely person you would ever think. This story is so upside down. So let's set, set the stage, actually, before we read. I know I said we're going to read the text. Let's actually set the stage, because there are some key players here in this text. First of all, you have this guy named Herod the Great. Herod the Great. The best way to understand Herod the Great was that he was a Jewish leader under the Roman Empire. Rome ruled through Caesar, but basically Herod, if you could put it right down to its plainest form, was a puppet king. He was a kind of puppet guy in the region called Judea, and if you read the Gospels, you'll hear about him often, and his sons, who would later take over. It's another story. And he had his little kingdom in the Roman Empire, known as the Herodian uh, kingdom. But here's the thing. The guy's a tool. Can we just be honest? Is that all right? Can we be honest in church? He's just a puppet. And ultimately, I think, and not everybody may be convinced on this, but I'm convinced he's kind of there in power just to keep peace because the Jewish people are under Roman rule and they kind of need a figurehead. And Herod was that guy. 
though I would imagine your everyday Hebrew in Jerusalem didn't think too highly of Herod, he was this polarizing figure under the empire that was kind of trying to keep peace. He was known for a couple things. One, his monstrous buildings. So he actually built the second temple. If some of you guys have been to Israel and to Jerusalem, he was one of the architects of that second temple. But not only that, he was known, his palace was like well known. Apparently it was something that you could see from the four corners of Jerusalem, this monstrosity that he had kind of built for himself. And We're going to see in the story that Herod, Herod the Great, was an absolute insecure person who was a tyrant. It even gets weirder after he dies and actually passes his kingdom down to his sons because he divides it into like three into tetrarchs. And it is like the combination of an episode of Jerry Springer and Game of Thrones, though to the latter, I have actually not seen an episode, but I hear you nerds talk about it all the time, and I go, that sounds like Herod's kingdom right there, clamoring for power. So you have Herod, then you have the Magi. Oh, the Magi. One of the problems we have is, well, the good thing in this story is the central, one of the central pieces in this whole thing is these people called the Magi. The problem that we deal with is, we at Christmas time get our picture of the Magi from what? The nativity. Some of you have these little things in your home where you have shepherds and magi, these kings at the same time. And so the story kind of gets convoluted at times. A lot of people don't know the depth of the magi. The magi were a median group of priests and astronomers from the east who would have been strongly influenced by Daniel in Babylon. So Daniel, hundreds of years later, uh, these guys would have been uh, very much Eastern mystics in a sense, but priests and astronomers. They were, here's the problem that we don't understand when we read the story, is they were powerful. It was known of the Magi that they were actually more powerful than kings. It was said of them that in their time, they were actually the ones in the Eastern world that were to be known as king makers. So it was very hard to be uh, uh, kind of crowned as a king in the Eastern world without the Magi having their endorsement. Now, doesn't that like make your dashboard blink when we now read the Jesus story? Because actually in that culture, the Magi were very influential in enthroning kings around the ancient Near East. And they were not lowly people. They were not lowly people. These were powerful men in that culture from the Median Empire. They were feared by kings. Ultimately, kings wanted to be in good relationship with the Magi because of the power they held and they were rich. And here's the thing, there wasn't three of them. I know we think kind of in the story because of the three gifts, a lot of people think there was three Magi, but they literally traveled in caravans. Maybe hundreds of people with them, servants and all sorts of people with like boatloads in this story we're going to get to with boatloads of gifts for the king. I mean, this wasn't just three little guys showing up to Herod in Jerusalem. This was a whole caravan of people that held power in that culture. Make sense? Nod your head with, that's a big, that's kind of a game changer when we read this because it changes the story. Then you have Mary and Joseph, peasants from the backwoods. It's as simple as that. Galilee, right? Northern Israel, in the middle of nowhere. What, you know, the scriptures say, what good could come from Nazareth? This is what it was like. You, f- you think of your particular town or place that's kind of backwoods. This is what it was like in that moment. Mary and Joseph, just peasants. Mary was a teenager, peasant, and a major player. And then, of course, you have the Christ child, Jesus of Nazareth. Can I just remind us, a baby, no golden fleece diapers, 
born with the animals, and in the most vulnerable position, which we know is a child, as you hold one in your hands, which is beautiful. This is, what, this is how God, like, I, we can't lose this. This is how God actually came to us. So let's keep this in mind as we read. Ready? Let's read. It's a bit of text, but it's church. I think we can get away with reading the Bible in church. It says this, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for that is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Verse 7, then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He went, he sent them, sorry, to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they heard the king, they went on their way and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Now, it's a nice story, but honestly, we cannot lose the reality here that this is a clash of kingdoms. It is on like Donkey Kong, friends. There is more going on here that can just kind of pass us by as we read this every single year. This is the epiphany text. This is the epiphany story. And we need to get a hold of what's happening here. It actually says that they came to Jerusalem where the one who has been born king of the Jews. Now, when we read this, we read the Bible in English. But what's crazy here is this word king is the normal word that's used when in the Bible about kings or rulers or, emp or emperors. But here, actually, in the Greek language, when it says king of the Jews, it's actually capitalized. <laughs> you may not feel it. But that is like Matthew, some years later, throwing down. Matthew is dropping the mic here. That there is another king of the Jews, and his name, he thinks his name is Herod, and yet Matthew is convinced that there is another king, and so much so that even the little, little increment of, of capitalizing the letter is disrupting the whole system that's at play with Caesar and Rome and Herod. And it says that Herod was disturbed. And why? Why would Herod be disturbed? Because there's already another king of the Jews in his palace that you can see from all corners of Jerusalem. Everything is intact for Herod. He's ruling, he's oppressive, he's doing his thing. He's trying to work in peace with Rome and he's disturbed because there was already a king of the Jews. Now what's so funny about this text is that for this so-called king of the Jews, I don't know if you, you picked it up here, he didn't even know the Hebrew scriptures enough to when the Messiah was gonna be born. Did you notice that? He actually had to get the teachers of the law and kind of like the religious leaders around him to answer the question, where would the Messiah be born? This so-called king of the Jews. And so feel it in your bones. This is a clash between the empire, Herod's empire, 
and the kingdom of God that is breaking into the course of human history. And in reality, whenever there's a new king on the scene, we, even a couple thousand years later, in this story, have to come to grips with where our allegiance is. This is why Matthew is writing. This is why I think there's a capital on king. And this is why he's painting Herod in a certain way. It's because all of us have to grapple with the reality of God's kingdom breaking in and where is my allegiance. I just want to make it, just, just to let you know, when we talk about empires and in the scriptures, Babylon from the very beginning, even in Genesis 11 and 12, was kind of the prototype of empire. These, these systems, this government that's kind of against the living God. And if you know, the story goes from Babylon all the way through until we get to the Roman Empire. But this is actually... How Herod is acting here is actually how empire manifests itself, right? Like lying and deception. Did you see it here? So Herod sent the astronomers, the magi, where? To Bethlehem. He says, go and search carefully for the child and listen to what he says to them. As soon as you find him, here's what I want you to do. I want you to report back to me so that I too may go and worship him. Right, right? Complete total lies. Insecurity, Herod was filled with. How insecure? Well, if you keep reading and we didn't read it here, Herod's so insecure that he later issues the massacre of all male children in the area under the age of two in and around Bethlehem and Jerusalem because he's so insecure about this little king. You know what's funny? He's rattled by a baby, right? Isn't that, like, in my notes here, I put LOL, and then I put the haha icon, just to remind myself, that this tool is rattled by a little, and look, look, we have a baby in the room, like, a baby completely dependent on their parents, beautiful as she is, she needs her mom and dad, so vulnerable, and this king has to issue a decree to the area that all the males, the Hebrew males, would be put to death. Because here's the thing, the empire doesn't care about human life. This is how empires roll. They do not care about, uh, about human life and flourishing. Now, I know we've never seen anything like this in our time, <sighs> right? Say a world leader who involves themselves in illegal activity, which then has to be diverged with the f- threat of something like war. Sounds kind of close to home, right? Maybe a few missiles will distract us to the point where, and please, actually I want you to feel this deep down in your soul, to the point where four people from our own city, students from some of your own schools this week, lost their lives. Empire doesn't care about human life. Herod here is a prototype of what I think for generations empire does. It doesn't care about humans. And Herod is on the edge of his seat, embedded in petty and insecure actions, and we know that this is the story of empires that are against the living God. There is a better way, and the Jesus way is so much better. But you know what stands out to me here is just the kind of worship the Magi bring to King Jesus. So the story goes that they came to Jerusalem, and Herod the liar that he is says for them to go to where? Go to Bethlehem. But Actually, historians would say that the Magi actually disobeyed Herod and went to Galilee or to Nazareth where Jesus was. Herod was actually lying. And what do they bring? Gifts. And we're not just talking like little gifts. Caravan gifts 
that are expensive. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And that. Remember who these people are, the rich and the powerful coming. Uh, these were the ones that anointed kings in that world, and here they come with caravans of expensive gifts. Now, it gets me thinking about worship a bit. Just be honest, um, just been wrestling with this and what it means for us that God would come in the course of human history to us is utterly mind-blowing, but I find myself not so blown by that at times and just checking my own heart. But then when we look at the kind of worship the Magi brought, it's really interesting. I don't know if you know this, but in the New Testament, um, sometimes we talk about Greek words here, and people have said in the past, well, you're just trying to sound smart. That's not it at all. One of the reasons why we have to sometimes look at original words is because there will be words in the original language of the New Testament, and we will translate it with the same word in English as just one word. Make sense? So there could be three or four words with different layers in the New Testament, and we could make the translation sometimes in our Bibles as one word. And the word worship is actually like this. There are all sorts of layers in the Greek New Testament and different words used for worship, but typically in my Bible, wherever it is, it's somewhere here, I was reading off my iPad this morning, but they would render kind of the same word. There's a few words for worship that I just, I just want you to see kind of what is happening here with the kind of worship that the Magi brought. It's three different words for worship that are the primary words in the New Testament. The first word that we often see is this word latorgia, latorgia. And when this word is used, it's ultimately talking about a kind of worship. It's translated worship, just like the, all three of these words. But it's translated with the idea that worship is ministry or the work of the people or what we would call liturgy. Um, I, I like that term, the work of the people. I think it's best. In the ancient world, this word latorgia often had to do with a service or something that somebody performed voluntary for the state or the wider community. Paul used this word about himself as a minister or a servant. It actually can be translated as worship. In Acts 13, it says this, when they were worshiping or the community there was ministering, it's actually that word worshiping or ministering is the word latorgia. This is actually what Paul called himself as he brought a, re, a redistribution of financial gifts from the Gentile churches to the impoverished Christians in Jerusalem, he called himself a minister. And so latorgia is this word that's used throughout the New Testament, and it's often translated worship, the work of the people or ministry. The second word that's often used for worship is this. There's no test at the end, by the way, but I think this really helps us, is this word latria, latria. Now latria is different than latorgia in the sense that it ultimately talks about worship as sacrifice. This is the word in the Gospels that is used of Anna when she's giving sacrifice at the temple. Later on, Paul would use the word uh, latria in a really unique way. He says this, you know this well if you've been around the church. He says, therefore I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as what? Living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. This is your Latria. This is your worship that involves total personal sacrifice. This is the kind of worship that I want. Total sacrifice. And so one of the things that comes around the word Latria is the idea of worship in all of life. 
That's the kind of the connotation it's giving. Laturgia is more ministry, working with your hands, the work of the people. Liturgy, latria is worship in, in all of life, your life as a sacrifice before God. And those two things are wonderful. And in your Bible, scholars have worked to get it into our Bibles as the word worship. But actually, the word that's used here, and I don't know if you, I know we read it quickly here, but the word that's used three times here in the Magi story, when, it's, when we hear worship or worshiping, is this word proskuneo, proskuneo. And there's a different layer or dynamic to this word worship. Because proskuneo talks about whole body worship. Actually, the image you would get in the first century if you were sitting in a house church, reading the, the gospels, reading proskuneo, is the idea of bowing down or literally kissing someone's feet. Proskinesis, maybe that's a word, you know, like um, kind of translated. It's the act of bowing down. Proskinesis, ancient writers would use this to designate the custom of prostration before royalty or persons, reverencing them, kissing them, kissing their feet. I know it's weird for us in our moment, but this, you got to catch it. This is the word that Matthew uses when he talks about the Magi's worship. This is the kind of worship, not just all of life worship, which we're into, and not just liturgy, which we're into as well, but all of life in the sense of laying our lives down and worshiping and bowing. There's actually a bodily action summed up in this word. Make sense? Nod your head with me. Sound good? Now, what does this mean? Like, what about us? Like, I'm talking us, like Praxis Church 2020. I know it's like Jetsons 2020. Who would have thought? Here we are. We have some hoverboards. They're not like flying us to school yet, but maybe someday. I think about, I think about our little community, and I think about this text, and I think about what worship encom- encompasses here. Here's the thing. I think we're doing really well in some areas. So when we look at this, like, letargia, like the work of the people or ministry or liturgy. I think we're rocking this. Um, there's so many. I was even thinking, we were kind of looking through this week. Um, you know, we pray for you guys by name. We have this thing called Planning Center and your name's in there and we, we pray. I always say to people, you may not like this church, but at least you get prayed for, right? Anybody with me? That's all right. And I was just looking at the percentage of people that even in this community serve and give of their time and their ministry, their money, their talents, their abilities. It's amazing. I think Laturgia, that this kind of worship in our community is actually really active and really good. And as we've become more of a Eucharismatic community, one of the things we focused on is just what this hour and 15 or hour and 20 minutes means together in being a Eucharismatic community and being liturgical. And we use things like reading of scripture and communion and all these things. I think we're doing actually really good. And there are tons of people serving and giving their lives to this. I think Laturgia is actually happening. Latria, this idea of worship in all of life or sacrifice, I think is actually the reason why some of you are here. Just talking to you over the years, over the months. Um, I think some of us have grown up environments where worship was like the a pinnacle of worship was like chanting Bethel and Hillsong songs for like hours on end. Anybody need counseling like with me? Anybody? Come on. It's all free. Like that was the epitome of what worship was. And I'm, I'm into praise and worship. We'll talk about this in a second. But I think some of you are here because we talk about worship in all of life. 
So this week, when you press parents, when you press your nose up against the glass with the Timmys in the hand watching your kids play hockey, or you're waiting as you wait for your kids in their basketball practice, or you're sitting outside the piano lesson, and you're giving of your time, and you're, you're working for, an opera for, for, for profit, or you're volunteering at school, everything that you put your hand to is worship. And we've believed that from the very beginning. And this is actually, I think, some, one reason why there's a lot of you here is because worship is in all of life, and it's this worship of sacrificing our lives and laying our lives down. I think we're doing great in that. But the kind of, it's interesting, the kind of worship that is talked about in this text, proskuneo, is actually something I think we need to grow in. The kind of worship that the Magi brought to Jesus, I think when we talk about these layers, this is the one area that I think we need to grow in as a community. And it involves our bodies, and it involves an intimacy with the king of the universe, and can be, I think, at times, something that's lacking in our very own community. Now, I get that we all have different pasts. I just kind of poked and joked at my past, though I've had a great past in the church. I'm super thankful. And I'm not talking about hyper-emotionalism. I'm not talking about, like, rah, rah, kushkamba, we're just going to, like, get ourselves going in the name of Jesus. But I do think we need to be confronted with the reality that these guys actually laid their, their, their entire selves down. There was a sense of worship here where they gave not just gifts, but they gave, they gave everything. And I know we have different backgrounds. We're all cut from different ways. But here's the thing. I go to, I'm just going to be honest. I go to people, go to hockey games, and I go to concerts with people, and people are out of their seats, hands in the air, moving. I'm like, where? Uh, you know what the best is? Some of y'all in weddings. Like, when, it, when, you know, some people go to weddings and it's just like, where did that person come from? Anybody on the dance floor? You're like, I don't even, I thought I knew that person, but now that I've gone to a wedding with them, holy, it's like, a, this person is crazy doing the, doing the robot on the dance floor. And then we get to Sundays and it's a little quiet and a little reserved in the name of being a Canadian. And yet, an epiphany, an experience of a sudden and striking realization, always brings change. I would never force airborne, an airborne tablet into somebody's mouth anymore. I would encourage them to put in the water. That epiphany brought change. And what, what the Magi experienced here brought change. This kind of worship, proskuneo. And I just think as a community, as we look ahead to the days ahead, I think this is something that we can grow in. I think it has a lot to do with a few things. One, and I'm, we, one of the things here, everything is an invitation. Honestly, everything is an invitation here. And you know that that's one of the core things. But being on time for liturgy, that when we sing together, that this building would be filled up with people ready to go to sing corporately and worship together. That's proskuneo. That's the guy. I'm, I want all of, I want you when you leave here in a few minutes to go and live life for Jesus in everything. Go for it this afternoon. You know, that Latria kind of worship, go for it. You know, the, the ministry that you put, go for it. But I think, I think we just need to be encouraged that some of the things in experiencing proskuneo comes from us availing ourselves, being here, opening up our voices, celebrating, creating a space for whole body worship, all of these things. I'm not talking about hype or emotion as much as this has always been a part of the story. And so one of the things we want to do this morning as we look at this and as we look at Epiphany 
and the changing moments that we see as the gospel comes to the Gentiles is just give our, our, our church an opportunity to respond. The tables are gonna be open in a couple of seconds here. The team and Spence and these guys are gonna come and lead us. But just think about it. These dudes who are like Eastern mystics, they come and give this kind of worship to the king. What about those of us that have the whole story and have been following Jesus for a long time? What would that mean kind of for our lives and in our our worship. I'm not asking you to become something you're not, but I'm just asking that I think one thing Epiphany does, and we don't talk about it a lot, is conjures the kind of worship that is worthy of the king that we serve. Are you with me? And I hope, my prayer, is that we'd continue to stay, take steps further in walking in this kind of worship.